the Dunning-Kruger effect does not just apply to like some stupid person over there, right? It applies to all of us. And we're all ignorant in some domain. And in that domain, we are likely to overestimate our knowledge. That seems delusional, Louis Theroux once said to a neo-Nazi who believed that, since he was white, he was better looking than Denzel Washington. But are you also deluded? Am I deluded? Long-time listeners to the podcast will nod in the affirmative, no doubt, because so many of my episodes are there to point out not only the perils of such delusions and magical thinking that lead us to extreme ideologies and behaviours, but also how we can never be sure of our own cognitive biases and delusions. But can delusions ever be good for us? No doubt the neo-Nazi felt better about himself going through life believing he was better looking than Denzel, although that particular belief will only have entrenched his racist views as he went about finding the public responding to him as though Denzel were the better looking of the two. So that particular delusion is probably no good to him or anyone else. Yet plenty of delusions are good for us in a funny kind of way. And who better to talk us through all of that than a man who has spent a career writing about rationalism, critical thinking and beliefs in superstitions. American philosopher Stuart Vise serves on the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry, so he's well-placed to tackle delusions and he's also a lovely, interesting man with whom I have a lot of fun on this podcast because remember this is supposed to be enjoyable isn't it or is that a delusion too is religious belief a good delusion to hold what about magical thinking that leads us to gamble and mess up our lives or the lives of others we'll find out today follow Stuart on Stuart Vise on Twitter check out his works and life stuff on stuartvise.com and get his new book which I loved from start to finish The Uses of Delusion why it's not always rational to be rational. You can pre-order the hardback edition now. It's out August the 1st or just the book's out now, so go get it. For the patrons uh, of the podcast, we did a phenomenal bonus episode of 10 to 15 minutes and he gave some really fascinating answers to my bonus questions. So do check that out or sign up to it. Uh, even if it's just for one month, you just you know quickly listen to it all and then un unsign up on patreon.com slash Andrew Gold, where you'll get ad-free episodes of this podcast too. But now you're on the edge of delusion with American psychologist, teacher and author, Stuart Vise. What a wonderful book, Stuart. That is brilliant. Really, really enjoyed it. How are you doing today? Welcome to On the Edge. I'm doing great. And thank you. What, what a wonderful uh, introduction. I, I'm glad you enjoyed the book. I very, very much enjoyed it. Um, you Wait, so you start your book with a description of a woman who lost her husband in a car accident. What, what I want to ask you is, when do we need magical thinking? Well, I mean, there are lots of, I cover several examples in the book, but this was one, you know, that sort of struck me as being very poignant. Uh, but this is a, a woman that I knew uh, back when I was just starting graduate school and her husband died very suddenly, unexpectedly, and she was obviously very attached to him. And uh, so she, she, you know, was a rational person but she believed that he might come back. Uh, and she, she had this ritual. She worked in the university library and she used to sit at a window and there was a very sweet thing that he would walk to the library and pick her up at the end of the day and they would walk home together. And, and she told me months later after he died that she still looked down every day to see if he was walking towards the library. And, uh, and she, said, she said one time, you know, I just think he's going to walk through a door someday, you know, and come back. And yeah, it, it's sad, but uh, at the same time, uh, and obviously it doesn't make sense, but, but it, it, you know, it's not the kind of thing where any therapist would say, you know, snap out of it. Uh, it. It obviously was something that she needed and was comforting to her in that moment, a, diff a very difficult transition. And, uh, and she evidently moved on with her life uh, after that. But, but um, you know, it, it, was a, it was a poignant example. It's very much the same thing that happened to Joan Didion. She wrote about it in, uh, in her book, uh, The Year of Magical Thinking. And so, um, 
you know, th th there's a whole chapter on bereavement that covers a number of these kinds of, um, you know, prolonged relationships that people claim to have or, or think they have with people who have died. And, uh, uh, and uh, so, I, you know, I'm, I'm a rationalist. I am a, I, I write for Skeptical Inquirer magazine here in the U.S. And so, so, and I've been writing about superstition for many years. And, uh, but I kept coming across these examples where where we do things that are not strictly rational. You know, if you're looking at them some, from a sort of rational choice model point of view, straight economic point of view, uh, and yet they clearly benefit us. And so I began to think more about that and to come up with uh, examples of that 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 are really undeniably irrational but beneficial. I think one of the things that interested me so much about your book was because this podcast deals so often with magical thinking and stuff and often to point out the bad sides of it, the scary sides, you know, ideological things. And uh, are you concerned about, the, you know, when, when the delusions take us to bad places as well? Oh, obviously, yes. I mean, that's where, that's where I've spent most of my time in my career. And, uh, and, so, and I, I try to make, a, uh, you know, make it clear in the book that I'm not throwing out rationality. You know, I'm not suggesting that, you know, and, and also it's, it's also true that I, most of the examples of the book, it's not like, like you're standing at the precipice and you can say, well, I could do the rational thing or I could do the irrational thing. Most of the times, you know, the people who are acting irrationally in, the, in this book don't have much choice about it. It's part of their being. And, and, uh, and so I'm still a rationalist, very much so. And I do worry about the larger delusions that are unfortunately so popular right now in the culture. Is it? And I, I am often, I'm always having these arguments on social media and stuff with people who I think are quite far left wing or quite far right wing. And I always feel like I'm the center ground. But is that a delusion in itself? Because I always think about people who say that they don't have an accent, as an example. I often meet Americans and they'll say, yeah. yeah, it's funny. You've got a great accent and I don't even have an accent. And I'm like, if you heard how I can hear you, you know, it's right. an accent. Right. Is, is it possible to be devoid of, of an ideology, for example? No, I, I don't think so. Not, not entirely. I mean, we can, we can try to be aware of it, you know, to the extent that we can. I, I believe I have an accent, for example. Uh, but... But, uh, but, you know, I, I do think that we're, you know, we are subjective beings and we, we, we come from, our, you know, our own point of view. Uh, it's, it's hard to be completely free of, uh, you know, false beliefs that they're just, they're just there. But, but uh, certain, certain, you know, we do have certain ways of trying to parse it and, uh, and to uh, avoid the pitfall. So, so uh, I think it's good that you're in the middle. Uh, I think that that's probably a, a smarter point place to be. It seems to me that most of the dangerous delusions are on the far left and right at the moment. Is the best answer then to always go into things thinking, I might be wrong, I might not be sure, because of course then you get accused of being some sort of fence sitter or not caring. That's what I get accused of sometimes. No, it's not that. It's, do you know what I mean? <laughs> Yes, I do. I, I think that you I, I think that's exactly the right attitude. You know, you know, uh, one of the, you know, sort of mental exercises that I think is very useful is to ask yourself, what are the best arguments on the other side uh, of the issue? Like you, you if you have a point of view, what are the strongest arguments on the other side? And that may take a little bit of research, actually, for some of us, because we may not have come across those best arguments yet. But uh, but yes, there's there there is a you know a need to try to uh, look at both sides, and then of course sometimes you just say, well, I'm still going to stick with what I've got, or you know in the rare instance you might be persuaded to the other side. But but to not think about it that way, I think, is a mistake. Definitely, it's it's aspect of critical thinking. You speak of or you write of uh, useless delusions and harmful delusions, and I, I think one of the because I, I write all my notes like three in the morning and I do it on my phone, <laughs> so I sort of like I, I go okay and I go to the site because that's when I'm reading to go to bed. Yes, um, and so a lot of my notes don't make sense, and I just have to make sense of them at the time. But it was a useless delusion, something like flat Earth theory, and and a harmful one like uh, ratio bias, which which is sort of gambling and things like that. Right, right. There, so so there are. Yes, the the, uh, the flat Earth, of course. I don't. I don't think it's all that harmful, but it's clearly irrational. I mean, it, it is. I, I I guess that the people who are flat Earthers and are public about it 
are definitely going to get some ridicule for that. Uh, but but beyond that, they're probably functioning okay. There seem to be some very high-profile people that are flat earthers at the moment, which is shocking. Uh, but uh, but uh, yes, racial bias is a, is a, a, a funny thing with that involves gambling, where where people tend to be influenced by the wrong aspect of the probability, right? Where uh, uh, you know you have to you have, for example, if you're given the the choice, you, you get to pick from one of two bowls, and you want to pick a black marble out of the bowl, right? And so one one bowl has ten marbles with just one black ball out of the ten, and another bowl has a hundred marbles with ten black marbles out of the hundred. So probability is exactly the same, but they are quite different. The bowls are quite different, and there's a tendency among people to want to go for the big bowl because there's ten. You know, I got ten winning chances over here, right? I've only got one in this one, and uh, and that's fine. That's not irrational. But what you know, the research has shown in the past is that when you now take one of the black marbles out of the larger bowl, so now there are only nine, right? But it's still, it's nine, right? It's nine, not one. And so uh, there are people who will choose, uh, a shocking number of people who will still choose the larger bowl because there are nine. And so they're being, they're being sort of distracted by the, the larger number of winning uh, chances and not taking into the denominator, obviously, which the, the probability is now lower in that bowl and so on. So, so that's, a, that's clearly a, a dilution of, of sorts or, or an error of some kind uh, and, and not, not a good one, right? Uh, and, uh, and, you know, it probably explains why some people play the lottery when they shouldn't. Yeah, I was actually thinking about what, what you'd written, um, you know, the next day after reading, uh, when I was listening to the radio in the car because they have all these things, which I, I imagine they have in the US as well, where they say, you know, uh, answer this question or something like send in a text to us and then we're going to call the first person uh, who picks up. And if you pick up after three rings or something, and that's sort of a sleight of hand because they're tricking you. It's like the game is that you have to pick up within three rings. And really the game is you've got to be one out of like, you know, I think the I think the winnings was something like £30,000 and they were getting like 50p per text. So I had to, I thought they have to have at least 60,000 people calling in for it to be worth it. So if you saw a list of all the 60,000 numbers, the chance that someone will pick yours is like astronomical. But because you're thinking about this whole thing of like, oh, they're going to call and I've got to pick up on the rings. I can do that. I can answer a call like that. Because <laughs> I was almost tempted to call in, you know, and that would have been stupid unless I was the winner. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And of course, the, the, the investment on your end is is small but but uh you know they're they're betting on thousands of people doing it so yeah it's you know lotteries are have been described and this is i consider this sort of a lottery uh lotteries have been described as taxes on people who can't do math yeah <laughs> except say that to the ones who won it <laughs> well i know i know there's there's always got to be a winner doesn't there i know so, I, tell, anyway. I said this to my dad about it being a tax on, um, I didn't say on stupid people because I'm nice to my dad and I don't think he's stupid. And I don't mean to imply <laughs> that all the listeners, because again, statistically, many will do the lottery and many will have won stuff. So good luck to them. Um, one of the delusions that we have, or one of the types of delusion is sort of more positive thinking about ourselves, positive views of ourselves, the idea that we have more control than we do and more optimistic about our futures. And is that helpful for us then to have this positive concept of ourselves well i think in a number of ways it is in a couple of ways it's not you know it, it depends on the context and that's true of a number of the delusions in the book that they that they are they are sometimes good but not always good and uh so so the optimism bias is first first of all it seems to be very true very widespread and uh and in fact, it, it is probably a component of good mental health to have a sort of overconfident uh, sense of yourself. Uh, but but uh, but so and it is very valuable, I think, in circumstances, for example, if you're uh, well, let me start with the with the bad news. The bad news is that that at the beginning of an enterprise, uh, it, if you're overconfident, especially if there's a big downside, for example, starting a business. Uh, or in the worst case scenario, starting a war, right? If you are overconfident about your abilities uh, at that point, 
that could this is the moment where you probably should be coldly rational and pessimistic uh, and and think of all the ways in which it could go wrong uh, at that moment. Of course, if everybody did that, then maybe there would be no businesses at all that you know people would not go into business. But but uh, but that's the moment where where overconfidence could be a problem. Once you're engaged and you're doing the enterprise, then overconfidence uh, I think is quite valuable because it gets you up in the morning and working and doing things. And and if you're working in a team, if you're a leader and you're overconfident, that's kind of contagious, and your 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 fellow workers will will work hard as well. So. So I think that uh, it depends on the circumstance. Also, it's true in in a number of competitive situations. I talk about tennis in the in the book, and you know the idea that if you are overconfident about your ability and you and you're convinced of it, you're you know really convinced of it, you're not putting it on, then that is going to be detected by your opponent, and it can only help. And uh, so. So I think that in in sort of day-to-day combat, whether it be work or sport, uh, that overconfidence can be quite valuable. Is that why tennis players often sort of scream and yell? It's like a, it's a warrior cry. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, it depends on the situation. I talk also about tantrums. You know, they, there are players that have tantrums on the court. McEnroe, <laughs> exactly, and and others like it. And uh, and I don't think that's actually very helpful. You know, that it, it, because I mean, it may the commentators always say, like, "Well, he's getting himself, he's psyching himself up. This is how he does it." You know, that it's usually he, and uh, and and they you know they explain it away. But what they're ignoring is the effect on the on the competitor. Like like if I'm playing somebody and they erupt into a tantrum, I'm going to say, "Hey, I'm doing okay." You know, you know that's 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 a, that's a good thing. Andy Murray as well guilty of that. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And and so I think that's. I think that some of the better players are the ones that sort of look like cyborgs. You know, they just keep coming at you, and and that's that's tough to deal with from the other side. God, it really felt actually, and I know obviously this is my own bias, but watching the tennis over the last sort of decades or decade or so, obviously supporting Andy Murray, him being British, uh, it did feel like there were these three cyborgs in Nadal, Djokovic, and Federer who were just like nothing phased them. Whereas Andy Murray felt to me like the, a very British thing. It's the same in the soccer or the football when we take penalty shootouts the the most tense part and it was like we always lost to the germans who were just these robots of course i'm sure some of that's in my mind but that's the impression we had of ourselves as like these emotional beings who let ourselves down in those big occasions yeah maybe john McEnroe got a little of that too uh, but yes, yeah, I, I I I like Andy Murray. I think he's a good player. Oh yeah, yeah, he he was great in his in his uh, in his when on you know when he wasn't injured um, too badly. Did you see? Speaking of like being overconfident about war, did you see that George Bush thing when he came out the other day and oh, yeah. <laughs> one man oh, my God. one man should never have oh. such power to launch an attack on oh. Iraq? I, I mean Ukraine. <laughs> Unbelievable. I mean, that is the Freudian slip of all time, really. I, 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 I can't help but think that uh, it was going through his mind. But, uh, but yeah, that that was that war was a mistake, and uh, and and I, I think I I hope that uh, Putin will recognize that this war was a mistake too. But he doesn't seem the type, Putin, to recognize his mistakes. Is there something? In evolutionary psychology, in in our being so sort of uh, confident about our ideologies and stuff and why we stick with them so much, have you given much thought to that? Well, there's a lot of, I mean, obviously we do a lot of self-protective things. We we do like to believe that our our ideas are right, that we are smart and so forth. So, so that does lend itself to pushing aside conflicting information, you know, confirmation bias and and so on. It it makes you feel it, we all feel better if if we haven't wasted our time with stupid ideas and uh, and if if our ideas are are valid. So so I think that's pretty much built in that that uh, and and part of the system which is can be a problem obviously, you know, when when it turns out your ideas are wrong, uh, it it's not a good idea to cling to them. But uh, but I do think that that's a natural human tendency to to be self-protective. Uh, it's hard to accept the alternative, and uh, and so it's a skill. I mean, if you're a critical thinker, it's obviously a skill that you have to tune up. You need to be able to reject 
when you're convincingly, you know, proven wrong, you have to be willing to accept it and move on. And uh, but that's hard, hard to do. It's painful. It almost actually physically hurts, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. <laughs> it does. Yeah, I've I've tried to uh, to to tune myself. You know, one of the things of being a writer, right, is if you have an editor or if you have readers. Uh, you get these, and sometimes the reports are anonymous, which means that they can say whatever they want and, and not get hurt by it. So you do have to thicken your skin a little bit, and I've, I've tried to to learn that skill, but it is hard, especially when you're doing something as you know close to your core as writing, right? Where these are my words and thoughts, right? And and you just don't understand, uh, but uh, but it's it's tough. I have that with the podcast because the people who can review it on Apple, they are anonymous and you can't reply. So you can't even leave a little message underneath saying, well, hang on. No, you've misunderstood. What... And it's really, really frustrating. Hey, why did you tell your, your children? Why did you tell your kids that everything takes longer than you think? Well, I think it does. I mean, that, that's part of the optimism bias, right? That, that we, we uh, set out on a project and uh, and we think, oh, this will be this will just take 10 minutes. And uh, and before you know it, you're late and it's not and it's not happening. So. So, uh, yes, that that was uh, one of those annoying dad sayings that my kids probably are sick of. But but uh, but I think it's mostly true and it's certainly a protective one. You know, if you if you assume that that things are going to take longer than they you 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 imagine they will then you're probably going to be safe so hey it's andrew if you're enjoying heretics there's another podcast i want to recommend to you especially if climate change global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster what could go right is hosted by progress network founder zachary carabel and executive director emma varva lucas on What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on What Could Go Right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. I've got this great bias that I've recognized in myself where I, um, if I I'll get very excited about a potential job offer or a, a documentary chance to for the BBC or whoever it might be. And then if it doesn't happen, my brain will very quickly think that I never wanted it in the first place. And we'll, because actually it'll be better to do it in this other way. And what a relief I didn't get that thing. Do you think that's universal? I think it's very common. I don't know if it's universal or not, but it's sort of the sour grapes thing. Uh, you know, they, they were probably sour grapes anyway. Uh, uh, but... Uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, it is true that, pro again, you know, if you think about that sequence you're describing, as it was an exciting, you know, possible offer, you probably have a bias to think of all the positive aspects of it. And, and if you had accepted it and done it, some of those negative things that came to you later might have presented themselves as well. But in the, in the moment of anticipation, you probably have this bias in the other direction. Uh, and and uh, and it and it's undoubtedly helpful, you know. Once it goes away, uh, again, it helps your ego and your feeling about yourself. If if you say, well, you know, come to think of it, it would have been a pain in the butt, and you know, probably wouldn't have worked that well. So uh, neither 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 view is is realistic entirely, but. Uh, but you can understand the psychology of both. Yeah, I suppose it's all leading towards this concept of uh, delusion about our own self-worth in a more positive sense. You know, thinking more positively it serves, I suppose, as a motivator to get up and do the next thing. Exactly, exactly. If you didn't think you were worthy and and if you didn't think that, you know, there, there are good things ahead for you, then it would be hard to get out of bed. And, and uh, you know, the, uh, we, we've said this a couple of times, but there is good research that suggests that that the normal psychology for for a non-depressed person is to be overconfident. There's this this classic study uh, 
where people were asked to press a button uh, to try to turn on a light, and and the and it was sort of was a funky light that sometimes you pressed and it didn't go on, other times it would go on when you hadn't pressed and so forth. And so when it was all over, people were asked, "How much control did you have over the light?" You know. And normal, non-depressed people said they had a lot of control over the light, but they overestimated how much they had. And uh, and whereas people who are mildly depressed had a very accurate, you know, estimate of of, of how much control they had over the light. So so uh, the, you know the the subtitle of the article was something like "Sadder but Wiser," because you know these depressed people had a realistic view, whereas typical non-depressed uh, have, have an overly rosy view. And so that's why I say this optimism bias is undoubtedly uh, part of good mental health uh, and, and, and a motivational tool. But also could take you away from reality a little bit. Do you, I wonder, do you think it has anything to do with, I don't know, levels of serotonin in the brain if you're depressed and it, it, something isn't functioning to allow you to delude yourself in a way that it does with non-depressed people? I have no idea. I mean, obviously, serotonin is involved in in treatment of depression, uh, but what goes on in the brain there is kind of a mystery to me. But I, but I, but what's clear from outside the brain and from you know from what we see of people is that uh, it's extremely common to be overconfident uh, among happy, well-adjusted people. So. And what about um, the Dunning-Kruger effect? So Dunning-Kruger uh, effect is is where you 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 don't know something about a subject, but you think you do, and and it's apparently quite common. And it, it has been challenged recently, but uh, but I my under, my view of the research is that it still holds up as a principle. So so it's sort of like. Uh, it's one thing to not know, to be ignorant of something, right? Like you think that I think I, let's say I, I said that I, I know a lot about medicine, for example, which I don't, uh, and, but I believed I did, right? So, so that the the one problem there is is that first of all, I don't know anything about medicine. That's one problem. But the other thing is that I'm not aware of my ignorance, and so that's the Dunning-Kruger effect. That that people people who who actually don't know much about a subject uh, are often uh, unaware of it, and and so it's a it's a double whammy in a sense, a, a double problem, and uh, and it, it's common. I. I one of the studies I and most my most favorite study on this topic is one where uh, there were people in uh, who knew very little about autism and the causes of autism, right? But they actually believed they knew more than doctors knew, right? Their, their knowledge was very, very low, right? Uh, and they thought they knew more than doctors did. And and whereas people who were quite knowledgeable, according to this test that was taken, you know, an objective test, uh, uh, actually slightly underestimated their their ability. And so, so uh, it's it, you know ignorance ignorance has has real problems. It, it, you know it's not it's it's bad enough to be ignorant. It's it's quite another thing to be unaware of it. And autism is an interesting example because I, I guess that exact ignorance led people around the world to believe that vaccines uh, caused autism. Exactly, and 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 in fact, the people who who were the most ignorant about it were more likely to endorse. The idea that celebrities should be our guide as to what to do about vaccines and so forth, as opposed to medical experts, you know. So imagine saying that you're getting asked by psycho psychologists and things to do a survey, like who do you trust more, doctors or celebrities? And you're thinking Brad Pitt knows <laughs> a lot about this stuff. It's just so bizarre. Yeah, it's crazy. So anyway, but it's it it is a it's a problem. The 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 thing that's that I will say this, uh, and I've written about Dunning Kruger separately from this, but uh, from this book, but but um, one of the things that uh, David Dunning, who's you know one of the authors points out all the time is that the Dunning-Kruger effect does not just apply to like some stupid person over there, right? It applies to all of us. And we're all ignorant in some domain. Uh, and in that domain, we are likely to overestimate our, our knowledge. So, so it, it's both troubling and to some extent humbling uh, concept. 
one i think i find that so, a lot in languages and i know people <laughs> i mentioned my that i speak a few languages on pretty much so many episodes that people have even written in saying it's a drinking <laughs> game now that when when i mention that i speak some languages <laughs> to show off about it somebody has to have a drink um but that is the place where more than any other where I've really noticed it because you go somewhere like France and you speak French or whatever or, or and sometimes they don't speak any English. They'll only speak like two or three words, but they'll be so sure that their slight knowledge of English outdoes my French, even though I, you know, I've studied in French and lived in French and worked in French, that every time I speak French to them, they'll come back in English and go, uh, yes but ooh, <laughs> right or something and i just think if you knew how much goes right. into actually you know, it's so frustrating to me i know i sound arrogant about it but it's so frustrating to me i put so much time there were so many words there's so much with syntax and different things you've got to get to grips with and that's that's probably a dunning kruger thing isn't it the uh no i'm sure it is I, I and i know the feeling i've had that happen to me too i mean i'm not a i'm not a uh, i speak very little french but but it is frustrating to to go out into you know another language and then have them come back in yours. Uh, it is it's like a slap in the face. Yeah. But uh, it's really rude. Maybe it is. It is. Oh. So especially especially because if you do speak English, they're also offended. They're like you've you've come to France and then I'm not just having to go French people. By the way, <laughs> this is universal. But you, you come to France and you speak in English, but then if right. you speak French, they're like, oh, a challenge, <laughs> hey, and then I'll come back to you in English. So if you want, if you don't speak much French, try and say a sentence, then they will go back to English. I think that's the way to do it. Um, one thing, speaking of like stereotyping cultures and things, which I like to do, um, whenever I've been to the States, very smiley people in customer service in particular, uh, and quite smiley in the UK as well, probably. I lived in Germany for a few years. Not the case at all. It's just not a thing that's done. And you write about the sort of um, the cognitive dissonance from a lack of authenticity that comes from having to smile in service jobs. What's that about? Yeah, it's apparently, I mean, if you think about the people that we encounter out in the world when we when we go out there now, uh, you know, they are required as part of the job to be kind and smart and, and smile and so forth. Uh, and of course, if you think about the uh, the airlines lately, it's, you know, they have a real challenge at the moment because people are behaving very badly or were during the time when masks were required and so forth. But um, but that actually turns out that inauthenticity, the, they're, they're, they're sort of putting on a smile is referred to as emotional labor. And uh, and and uh, it's, it is it is a problem for them. I bring this up in the context of of you know being able to you know own your emotions and feel confident and believe your own hype, as opposed to these circumstances where people have to put it on. And and in those circumstances, it it, it can be a problem. It can be difficult. And uh, and it, what they look for. The interesting thing is that the people who are best adjusted at this, uh, like like airline uh, you know uh, hostesses and so forth. They they give a certain amount to the customer initially, uh, just a, a, you know in terms of warmth and so forth. But they don't go beyond that unless it's reciprocated. And if if the customer you know reciprocates, then they can let their guard down a little bit and so forth. But if they but in order to protect themselves to some degree, they put on a a minimal level of of cordiality and 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 you know warmth. Uh, that they then that they then extend further if it's reciprocated by the customer, and that apparently those people do better. They 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 have a better adjustment and and are less stressed out by their job. So um, it, it's an interesting thing. So rather than like putting it on too much from the beginning, just give it a bit of cordiality and then sort of and just waiting to see if if, the, if it's necessary to continue. Exactly, and and see whether it's safe to continue in a sense. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, and and then but yeah, but I you know what? Yeah, because I think about. I mean, I think I do that. I think in this job, I don't think it's necessarily conscious so much. It sort of comes out. Uh, sometimes I do these live streams where I'm interviewing people for four hours straight, and I come out of that more tired emotionally than than any than if I could run a marathon or something. Because I must be, I'm smiling, I'm engaging in conversation, I'm doing all this stuff. It takes energy. It does. It definitely does. It's work. You know, it is. It's and it, it, anything that's not, uh, you know, second nature to you. And that you're consciously you're having to sort of you know uh, address with concentration, it's going to wear you out. And uh, 
So I, I, I have great sympathy for the people who have to work with the public uh, in that regard. I'm glad that I can just throw words out and people can, I don't know what they respond, how they respond to them or not. But <laughs> Yeah, yeah awfully terribly no we love we love you we love your work it's apparently a, it's good at putting you to sleep at night and when you're reading it <laughs> that's i always read it i always read at night it's it, it's it's the best thing because i didn't used to sleep well um and i did have I, I studied english literature at university so loads of books and i had a couple of years afterwards where i was like you know what i don't want to ever read a book again in my mm. life mm. right and i didn't sleep well yeah. And a couple of years later, I got back into it again. I got a Kindle, so I didn't have to have a light on that annoyed my girlfriend or anything while I'm trying to sleep. So it's right. just because it's a little screen that's slightly lit up. Yeah. And now it's just like I never, ever, if I go to sleep and I think, oh, I can't find my Kindle, I'll right. have like a panic attack now because right. it's so good at getting into a sleepy mood. Yeah, yeah. It settles you. It's good. It's great. Yeah, that's the thing. Uh, but yeah, just uh, your book was so interesting that I lost sleep. Over it. No, it was, it's, it's, <laughs> I'm sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, That's yeah, okay. you should be. No, no matter, no matter, even if it is like, when it is really interesting, like yours. I mean, it does. It just takes my mind away from like the worries of the day mm. and that mm -hmm. stuff. And I'm just in the book, and then I'm asleep, and it's great. But you talk about code switching, which is a similar thing, and uh, to what we were just saying, I suppose. And you, you would change your accent a little bit at times. Yeah, th th this is one example that I had from my youth that was somewhat similar to the the airline uh, host person uh, but uh, I was working in a factory I, I uh, and it was actually I really enjoyed the job it was quite different from anything I had ever done and I was a summer job in the town that I lived in in Illinois and it was a it was a factory for building stadium bleachers that like you know the bleachers that might be in a in a field house inside you know that the kind that collapse and then and then come out and um, so uh, it was a lot of metal. It was a lot of uh, cutting and drilling and, and uh, um, you know, just really very different things than I had done, welding. And, uh, and the people who worked there full time and were not summer hires like me were from the country. And even though, you know, we were not living that far apart, we were working at the same place, they were relatively uneducated and had different accents than me. I had, hadn't even started really at university that much, but, but apparently I spoke differently than they did. And I, I felt uncomfortable. You know, it, it was like, I'm not, I wanna, I wanna be a part of this group. I wanna feel comfortable with them. And so I slowly adapted some of their speech uh, patterns and a little bit of their accent. Uh, no one said anything about it. No one, you know, you know, said, "Hey, what are you now? You're talking differently, or anything like that." But my sense was, and of course, it's not a true experiment. I don't know, but my sense was that I fit in a little bit better. I felt as though I fit in, fit in with them. And uh, and then at home, I would go home and speak the normal way. So uh, it didn't stick or anything. And uh, and so, um, you know, it, there is we do that. I think that I think that the different environments we're in, uh, we we present ourselves in different ways. I have an example also in the book of people in work situations who who were sometimes very nice to people of their own stature but then treat people below their stature very rudely. And uh, so it's, uh, you know, we, we are different people in different environments and can be very easily. Yeah, I, I think um, I, I've told this story before, but I did a, I, I, that really stuck with me when I read that because I did the same thing when I was like, I must have been about 10 years old. And I used to go to football, soccer games, to Tottenham Stadium with my dad. And um, then my brother started coming along. And then, so we couldn't get seats all together. So my dad and brother sat in one place. And my dad walked me along, you know, 15 seats away and sort of said to the other fans, uh, this is Andrew. He's going to be sitting here now. And I was a little kid. And we're so aware of class and accents in the UK, I think more than in some other places. It's just it's such a big part of our fa like social fabric. Um, and I was aware of being sort of middle class or whatever. And football and soccer at the time was a, a, a working class uh, man's game, really. Uh, less and less so now because of the money involved in TV and stuff like that, and the money to go to the games. Um, and I remember my dad left me there and I was sort of looking up at all these like, people around me and he went off and I just affected this really working. I was like, all right, lads, how's it going? Yeah, yeah, a bit of a game today, isn't it? Oh, I hope we win. And it, it created a problem for me because it meant whenever my dad came over like a half time to come and say hello or whatever, I couldn't speak in front of him. 
And it, I, my, I, after a few years, I began to realize that my only way out of it was for every season, every year, to gradually lose some of those sort of the working class inflections and things. Uh, very great. It took about 10 years of gradually, gradually doing it so that nobody noticed. And I think I got away with it. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, that's a very good example. It's exactly the same phenomenon. And But you probably felt... Uh, better doing it right surrounded by these other people yeah. I, I yeah I mean we I, I am aware of the fact that accents we have accents here too obviously you know southern and northern and so forth but it's but it's probably not as quite as dramatic as as and and you know the class the posh accent versus the you know working class is quite different over there so yeah it's a real thing it's a real thing um and i yeah i think i tried to hide it for years and then i just went you know what what's the you got to live your life yeah. you got to be who yeah. you are i remember asking my dad at one point you know dad are we are we posh it was like this big thing on my mind when i was about 16 and uh he just said well, well you are but i'm not <laughs> <laughs> very strange that's but, great you know. yeah um, yeah <laughs> Tell me about some other bad kinds of overconfidence. You mentioned war, I suppose, mortgages, loans, student loans. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 And and I, we, you know, I don't know what the system is over there, but uh, and having taught at an expensive liberal arts college for much of my career, I I'm very aware of this. And I also wrote a book about uh, debt, personal debt, um, earlier, but called "Going Broke." But uh, yeah, people, uh, you know, I, part of it is that, that university education for some people, not everyone, obviously, it has been put on a pedestal and, and, the, and the importance of getting to the very best possible school you can uh, has been really promoted by parents and others. And so, so you have a situation where you have a, a, a person who is literally 18 and they can't you know they can't uh, drink a beer legally in the U.S. Uh, they, you know they can't do a lot of things, but they make one of the biggest financial decisions of their lives by signing on to enormous amounts of debt. And and uh, and there are I come across a number of examples of people who just assumed that all things would work out well. For example, uh, uh, in that other book, there's a case of a woman who. Uh, had always been a very good student. She went to law school, took out loans to go to law school, and she, uh, uh, you know, came up across a course that she just could not pass. And it had never happened to her before. She just could not. She even dropped out of that school and went to a different law school and still could not pass the same, whatever the course, the topic was at that second school. She ended up with something like, you know, 30, 40, $50,000 in debt and no degree for it, right? She had the debt, she'd paid for it, but she, she you know, so those are, those are the situations and some of them are unforeseeable and that may be rare, but what we don't hear about much here in the U.S., at least, is the regret. There, if you if you look around and ask people, uh, they'll say, "I wish." Many of them will say, "I wish I hadn't taken out those loans," you know, because they drag on forever. And uh, but at the time, you're not thinking about that. You're not, you know, you are thinking about the shiny degree and going to college and the fun you're going to have there. And so it's 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 a problem. There are intangible parts, aren't there, to, to going to university? Because it is also about, you know, often if you if you live in the university, you know, uh, learning to cook and stuff and meeting different kinds of people. So there's that as well. But I think also you were saying that a lot of people do better off in their careers now uh, without going to university. Is that the, the stats at the moment? Well, the this the situation is this that that uh, it's with respect to the debt itself. So. So, and this is an interesting phenomenon. So, in the past, it was the case that uh, they track people in their sort of uh, acquiring the life's goals, like getting married, uh, buying a car, buying a house, right, as sort of the adulthood milestones. And it used to be the case for many years that people with college debt actually hit those markers sooner. Why? The assumption being because they had a college degree and they were actually earning enough to overtake that their debts and and to do well that is reversed now in the US that that people who don't have college debt 
uh, are hitting those markers much sooner in terms of buying homes, getting married, having kids, all of those things. And, uh, and which shows, I think, that, that the amount of drag that the debt, it's now enormous amounts, you know, it's not uncommon to have people with $100,000 or more in debt just for a basic bachelor's degree. And so, so uh, the amount of drag that that produces, uh, you know, shuts off a lot of decisions they have that, uh, and, and it's a sad, sad situation. And, 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 the, and, the, and I have to say, as much as I like Bernie Sanders, the idea of just canceling the debt is, to my mind, ridiculous. I mean, I, 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 I'm very sympathetic to all the politicians that are saying that, but it's a stupid idea because like next week, some other kid is going to sign on to more debt. You know, you, you haven't fixed the system. It's easy to just say, cancel debt, right? But you haven't changed anything about the system that creates the debt. Virtue signaling a little bit. Exactly. Definitely. No, it's very easy. It's very easy to say that and not so easy to fix the system. Yeah, we've got a system in the UK that because I think some of our systems are a little bit more socialist a bit than in the US, the healthcare, for example, most things are the same, but there's the healthcare you get. And then the student loans, you don't have to start paying them back until you're earning over a certain amount, which is usually, you know, I don't know, $25,000 it would be or 20,000 pounds or something like that. I don't have the updated figures. Is that maybe a, a better solution so you're not sort of forced into very quickly having to pay back any amount? Yeah, I think that's an excellent system. I mean, one of the, one of the problems with uh, the current system here, I mean, think about it. A lot of the jobs that people would want the entry level jobs are either sometimes they're no pay, they're they're internships, or they are very low pay. And and so if you suddenly, as soon as you graduate, which is the case here in the US, pretty much as soon as you graduate, you have to start making these payments. And if you don't, you know, the interest accrues anyway, get gets more and more, right? So uh, so you know that means you can't take that job. You you have to make a different job. You know a lot of I I know you know it's sort of standard issue now that uh, law students, for example, who might go to law school for very admirable reasons, they want to do you know some some public defense or some you know cause. They they graduate with so much debt that they're forced to work for a big. Pay a big firm, a, you know, a Wall Street or a, you know some kind of expensive firm, just to pay off the debt, and then maybe after that they can think about doing the thing that they originally wanted to do. So, uh, so yeah, I think it's a much better system uh, uh, as you describe it. We should tell Bernie that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's it is it did take the pressure off, and I left university, and there's still that pressure, of course, that everyone has at 21, 22 years old, and you're like, I've got to get a job, otherwise I'm unemployable, and you know. But I ended up, I went off to Argentina, and I lived in, in Colombia for some time as well, and lived there, and I worked basically on minimum wage from from. Getting, and because I didn't have that debt hanging over my head, I was able to do that. And I think what you're saying is a really good point because we have the same problem in the UK where these jobs that are typically associated with perhaps highbrow uh, people who study the arts and the humanities and stuff. So I'm thinking about book publishing, uh, podcast productions, the same, where people are always complaining, oh, you know, why is it sort of white middle class people are dominating these industries? And a lot of that is because, you know, you, you don't make any money. There's no, They're not well paid at all. There's the prestige, isn't it? The social prestige. Um, there's no finance, especially if you've got a debt hanging over your head. How can you get into those kinds of industries? And and so if you can't take those cheap jobs and get the experience, and then maybe work up to a, a paying job, uh, you're in trouble. And and that is that is that's cut off by anybody who has substantial debt. That that whole path. So uh, it, it makes it makes sense in a in a horrible sort of way. Yeah, yeah. Whereas maybe somebody who didn't go to university, but maybe could have even left school high school early, started quite low down at a company. I've seen some people do that. Uh, the, the Sun newspaper I used to work at, uh, some people who started in, when they were 16, maybe part time and they climbed the ropes. So by the time somebody came out of university of huge debt, they were already past that place. So there is, I guess, an argument for that. There is, there is, yeah, sadly. What do you think about, I mean, what, at one point you write of um, being buoyed by the knowledge that you're a great writer and no one will tell you otherwise. <laughs> I'm going back to the, the delusions yes. of confidence and stuff. One yeah, thing I yeah, was wondering yeah. when I read that um, was about something you hear more and more about, which is imposter syndrome. And I saw somebody saying that she had imposter syndrome. It was a British celebrity and she was on the front page of a newspaper and she was just like all like, 
like you know and looked I saw, people listening won't know what I just did but I was sort of I suppose I was posing uh and I just thought am I am I being a bit hard here a bit harsh but I don't I I'm a bit skeptical of I think we like to believe we have imposter syndrome, but I think what you were saying is that most of us are actually overconfident. Yeah, most of us are overconfident. The, uh, I mean, the imp- imposter syndrome, if you hear about it from somebody else, may may have a certain virtue signaling, you know, trying to put off a feeling of gratitude and, uh, you know, so forth. Uh, but I'm sure it's real for some people, and it, and 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 there and there. Ha- I do give a, an example in the book of my own case where um, it was not so much imposter syndrome as as defensive pessimism. You know, the, the idea being that uh, I was, when I first was hired at a tenure track college and I was up for tenure, I had to, I had to work very hard and, it, you know, it wasn't a sure thing. And if you don't get tenure, you actually lose your job. You have to go, you know, you have to leave the place. And so I, and of course I was also from sort of a, uh, you know, I was a, a relatively middle-class kid. I went to public universities, uh, which apparently means something different over there than it does here. But nonetheless, the idea was that, um, you know, I, I was now at a very wealthy public, I mean, private school where with the students who had often gone to boarding schools and so on, and, I, and my colleagues were Harvard and Yale graduates, and I was thinking, you know, don't get used to this place. You may have to leave. You really like it here, but, you know, and, and uh, you know, that was, that was sort of an unrealistic pessimism, but I couldn't think of any other way to do it. I knew that I would be so crushed if I didn't get tenure that it would be better if I hadn't sort of gotten used to being here, and and that's called defensive pessimism, and and uh, and it it it's also a delusion of sorts, and it can have value in some situations. I found it I found it sort of a double-edged sword. Sword. I think it did help me get through, and it probably uh, and I did work hard, and I did get tenure, uh, thankfully, but. Uh, but the downside of it was that I couldn't shake it very quickly, as you probably read in the book. Like as soon as I got tenure, I didn't, you know, I couldn't really let myself now fully embrace the place right away. It was like it took some time to say, "Oh yes, now you really do belong here, and you have you have earned it, and you're just as good as anyone else." And so, uh, so there's a downside to it. But but defensive pessimism can be useful in certain circumstances. Uh, and I talk about, for example, uh, an impending plague, for example, that if you're defensively pessimistic as, as the virus is coming to town, you're probably going to take protective action that will you know, benefit you. Whereas if you're optimistic in that situation, you could get into trouble. Do you think that plays a role at the beginning of um, relationships, um, romantic relationships? There's a sort of, you don't want to get hurt. And I think a lot of people play that hard to get stuff. Is there a bit of defensive pessimism in there? I'm sure there is for some. Yeah, I'm sure that that the worry that uh, like this, this is too good to be true or I, or, you know, or I'm, I don't want to get used to this because it may just be a passing thing. There's a lot of, potential hurt involved in those situations and so allowing yourself to uh, to fully embrace the the idea is it can be can be dangerous but not everybody does it that way some pe- some people are just you know fools for love and will go right in and then get their hearts broken afterwards oh, god um why speaking of love and stuff why do you think uh, marriage tends to get worse in terms, in, in terms of sort of well-being and happiness when you have children, uh, even worse when they're teenagers, and then better after the teens leave home. Which Because I've always had a feeling when I've seen couples like, oh, they must get, they get a bit depressed after the kids leave. But is that not true? Well, I, th- I think that, uh, I mean, these, these are overall trends, and apparently they're not, all, they're not consistent across all countries, much, much of the data that, the, that has been provided. And I think that has to do, by the way, with the Childcare and other things uh, that are different across countries, but uh, but uh, the in the U.S. at least the data does suggest that that uh, that the arrival of children, as much as it may have maybe you know love you know an admired thing and, and something that everybody wants to do or many people want to do, um, that it does tend to lower marital satisfaction. 
and that and that it uh, it it you know gets better after they leave the the nest. Uh, so so I mean it's I've, I I don't know if you've gone through it or not, but I I am old enough that I have gone through it. it, it the arrival of kids, as much as it is a life changing and wonderful experience, does tend to increase the stress involved in a, in a marriage. My my marriage actually did not survive. Uh, uh, whether that had to do with the kids or not is another another thing. But they but just take the time and effort and work involved in doing it well is is a, is an added thing. So um, anyway, was that also down to your your refusal to believe in soulmates? <laughs> yes, yes that 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 may be part of it. Uh, the uh, the there's a story in the book uh, about the the idea that uh, a girlfriend at the time. Uh, claimed that she thought we were soulmates and and wanted me to believe it too, uh, and uh, and I I made the rash statement that you know uh, just doing the math we could there could, you know the millions of people in the world there might have been any number of other people that we could have met that we would like just as much she did not want to hear that and uh, and it was a very unromantic uh, thing to say apparently but yeah I mean. Lovers want to hear more than just you know I love you and I'm doing my best, right? They they want to they want to hear something more than that, and uh, uh, I talk about that quite a bit in the book that that there is a unrealistic aspect to love relationships, but some of that is is apparently very beneficial. We've got about seven minutes left, and one thing I'm always really fascinated about, so I want to move on to that, is determinism versus free will. Um, could you just explain briefly what that really means, just to, to lay people or people who have not come across those concepts? Yeah, I, I, t the, I have a section in the, in the book at the end. I leave it to the end because it's the big one, uh, in which I suggest that that our sense of conscious will, that we, that we decide to do things, is an illusion. Uh, it's it's not a popular view, uh, but it's not. I'm not the only one, uh, and I think that the, it it makes sense uh, in a number of ways. First of all, I do think that it's a, a useful delusion. It is a delusion that that, we, that has many benefits, but the, it's a delusion in the sense that there's a lot of evidence uh, that we feel like we do th make things happen when we don't. Uh, and we also have the opposite view, right? We have the we have the feeling that we're not making something happen. Like, for example, if you're playing with an Ouija board, right? You, I'm not moving it. You must be moving it. No, I'm not moving it. Uh, and so, so that it is easy. And there, there's uh, this guy Dan Wegner did a number of experiments, and we showed how he could separate those things out. He could fool people into believing they had made something happen when they hadn't and the opposite and so you know our subjective sense is 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 really the best evidence we have right i f i really do feel like i'm making decisions i'm i'm moving this hand you know and so on uh but it's obvious that it that it can be fooled we can be fooled and so that's part of it the other the other thing that to me doesn't it just doesn't make sense logically uh, you know, because because we have no problem with you know the entire universe, planets, galaxies, and so forth. Thinking of those as just sort of billiard balls out there doing their thing, they're not deciding to do what they do. They're just doing it, right? And and even on Earth, much of what we encounter, except for us and maybe a couple of other species, we're we have no problem with thinking that they are just you know mechan mechanistically doing what they're doing. So we have to carve out some special rule for us if if it's if it's true that we have free will and and to me it's hard not to to rail, to to believe that we, we just sort of believe it you know we 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 have this illusion and and we believe it and and it, it's not really different from billiard balls and nature I suppose we we have some voices well, I I just I'll, I'll boil that down to its most lay persony thing that you know uh so i guess what you're saying is the universe billiard balls and we're made up of that same stuff atoms bumping around and stuff and so when you think you're thinking something it's actually just things bumping around. when you think you've decided to walk it's not you've made a decision the brain has done it and and that has all sorts of ramifications for sort of morality and who you punish and don't punish um but it's also like it's not just humans because it's 
I mean, I guess we, to an extent, we think maybe dogs have some of it, but a bit less free will than us. Um, and then cats even less. And then we go down to insects where we'd say, oh, they don't really have, they really are sort of robots and stuff, right? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, no, I think that's what I say. You know, somewhere between insects and us, there's a line. And we, and we, have, a spe we have special rules for those species. Uh, and, not, and, and the rest of the universe, which is very large, right? Uh, there are no special rules. There, it all it all obeys the laws of physics and chemistry. So, so that's the part that is. And the other thing is, is that um, you know, it's there's other research in in experimental philosophy that shows that the uh, the when we see an action that someone d takes, right, uh, we we judge how free they were, whether they had a choice or not largely on how we feel towards them. If we want to, if we want to punish that action, we are much more likely to say you had a choice, you could have done differently. Uh, if, whereas if, if it's, it's a neutral action, then we're more, you know, we're more willing to accept that there was less choice involved. And so it's very difficult for us as humans, since we are social beasts and we want to control each other and get along and have our systems work, it's very hard for us to be objective in any judgment of certainly other people's actions. Uh, and so it, it, that obviously applies to ourselves as well. You know, when you do something wrong, right, suddenly all the external factors that, you know, well, I had a cold and I, you know, and I was tired and he was making this noise. You know, we, all these external factors suddenly come to the fore when we do something wrong that we, you know, if on the other hand, we do something right, it's like, yeah, I'm a wonderful person. You know, you take full credit. And, uh, and so, so it's very hard for us in these situations to be, really have an objective view. And it, it, to me, that also weakens the argument that we, that we have free will. I suppose, uh, yeah, it would be like sports people, or people who are really good, we often say it's down to their genetics to an extent, and we're more willing to accept that. But then, yeah, somebody killed someone and i suppose what do you do then because to an extent we're all sort of uh, are we actors gracing as gracing a stage we're just performing our lines without knowing necessarily what those lines are being conscious of them we're just sort of fulfilling these roles but we are also punishing people for just all they're doing you know what somebody's gone and murdered a baby that's the most horrible thing i can think of um they're on the on trial and we go you piece of whatever you're a real piece of work and we're going to put you in prison and i suppose there is an argument of like well apart from deterrent and i suppose we have to you know they they are what they are what can they do well, I mean, there are, I mean, obviously the, the, one of the things that makes it, you know, when, when, if that person has an awareness that they killed the kid, right, at least the, 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 it wasn't an alien that came in and do it, did it, that their body was the one involved in doing it, then that, that allows punishment to have an effect, right? In other words, we punish those people so that when they get into that situation again, or when someone observes this punishment and they think about killing someone or whatever, that perhaps that memory that you know will will affect their behavior. So, I mean, the the social nature of our species. You know, we are we are a highly social species. You you know we we can't live at birth without someone else feeding us and taking care of us. Uh, that that requires the ability to affect the group and to control behavior of the group and so forth. So I think this is why I think it's a useful delusion because the person who feels like they took an action then is eligible for punishment for it and that and that feeling will be part of you know what they take away from it. I did this thing and now the group has punished me. And so I, I think we've evolved this for a good reason that we've evolved this this illusion so that uh, the group can can have its influence on us glad that you were determined to do this thing which is the podcast you've been on the edge <laughs> thank you very much Stuart Vise my pleasure Andrew Thank you, Stuart, for your enlightening presence on this here podcast. I had a blast talking delusions with you. And unless I'm deluded, I believe you did too. 
Everyone support Stuart's work by pre-ordering the hardback edition of Uses of Delusion, why it's not always rational to be rational, or just get the paperback right at version or Kindle. It's everywhere and it's a really great read. People are loving it. And that it also gives um, insights into Stuart's personal life as well. He talks about ex-girlfriends and things. So it's not a purely academic piece. It's quite uh, quite fun and interesting to read as well as giving us all these academic insights. It's a great one. Follow him on Stuart Vise on Twitter and check out stuartvise.com to learn more about the man himself. We did a phenomenal bonus episode that you can listen to by signing up on uh, patreon.com slash Gold. Coming up on the podcast are ex-Scientologist and critical thinker John Atak and conspiracy theory debunker Mike Rothschild. So those will be fascinating. I've actually already done them and I can tell you they are really, really good. And I hope you stick around. Enjoy summer wherever you are in the Northern Hemisphere. Enjoy winter if you're in the South. Whatever you're doing, just enjoy it. Take a moment to take in a deep breath. Because sometimes I fail to do that. I'm just talking, talking. I don't leave a gap on this intro or outro. Take a deep breath and just be. And I'll see you in a few days. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.